Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Father, I ask that you would sink your truth deep into our lives and that we would be drawn close to Jesus Christ and to draw courage from him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the second part of a little two-part mini-series that Ethan and I are preaching on about Christness. And last week, uh, we looked at the Apostle Peter and his proclamation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, Jesus pays Peter a compliment, a very high compliment, actually two of them. He says, first, this proclamation that you've given, this didn't come from any human. God told you this. You, you are perceptive and hearing from the Holy Spirit. And, and it's God that told you that I am, in fact, the Christ. The second was that on the basis of Peter's uh, proclamation and his proclaiming role, that he would be uh, an important figure in the church uh, because of his proclaiming role of Christ. And then we come to this week's passage. And Peter is one of these guys that drives me crazy because he's very inconsistent. Peter, if you forgive the sports analogy, is a home run hitter who bats 125. When he hits it, he hits it out of the park. But when he misses, he misses really badly. Now give Peter credit though, staying inside the sports metaphor, he always goes down swinging. He has never missed an opportunity to speak ever. And tonight is no different. But there's a problem in what we see Peter doing. This inconsistency that he shows these really high highs and these really low lows he's the guy who walked on water and then fell in he's the guy to last week who proclaims jesus as the messiah and tonight gets called satan uh he goes really high and he goes really low and i sense when i read this passage that peter is a lot like us on any given day I have my highs and I have my lows. And so I'm not going to beat Peter up. I actually feel for Peter because I think I am Peter probably 75% of the time. Uh, But Peter needs to learn some consistency in his Christian walk. He needs uh, to learn what it means to to follow Jesus in, in in a way that is stable and truthful and on Jesus's own terms. You see, Peter... He, he wants to receive Jesus on, on his terms instead of on Jesus' terms. And so Jesus is entering into this time of ministry where he's beginning to reveal more and more about who he is and what he's come to do, that he's come to die. And in doing that, he's beginning to teach his disciples more what it means to be the Christ and what it means for them to be disciples of the Christ. It's a bit like having a car, and forgive that somewhat crude analogy, but, but Peter has like a Jesus car, okay? He has a Messiah car. It's a box. And Peter is busy filling that box with his own understanding of what it is. So Jesus needs to like fix that. So Peter has, let's say, a Mustang. 
And he knows all about the gear shifter and the power switches and the Bluetooth. And, and he knows that it's really fast. But he has no idea how to turn the car on. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, you have this image of me as Messiah and you are correct. But now I need to set you clear on what makes my Messiahship work. You need to know what the gospel is because you really only have the most surface understanding. And so Matthew tells us in verse 21, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. See, Peter wants to accept Jesus on Peter's terms. Notice that, that Jesus says actually three things in this passage. He says that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things, uh, that he must be killed, and on the third day rise again. Somehow Peter's brain stopped at be killed. And he doesn't see past it. Uh, he, he doesn't like what he's hearing because the plan that Jesus has just laid out does not fit the plan that he had. He is a follower of the Messiah. Things are supposed to go really well for that guy. And Jesus talking about dying is messing up Peter's plan. Now, Peter is just like you and I. We all have plans. Every one of you in this room has minimally a plan to get up tomorrow <laughs> and perhaps to, you know, eat. And most of you have a plan if you're in school to get through school. And most of you, if you're a professor, had a plan to get all the way through school and become a teacher. And some of you, most of you have plans, you're planning for retirement. And most of you, as you get closer to retirement, you're realizing something. That almost none of the plans you've ever made really worked out the way you thought they were going to. And Peter doesn't like it. And we don't like it either. So Jesus talks about being killed. He talks about being resurrected. But Peter stops at the killing. And he calls Jesus aside. And he rebukes him. It's a very strong word. It's the same word used when it talks about Jesus rebuking demons. And Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves. This is not a gentle rebuke. Now I want to cut Peter some slack. Because Peter's not... Uh, from his perspective, completely wrong. It's not as if Peter is simply making up all these messianic promises. He's read scripture. In this passage, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, later in, around verse 28, the Son of Man. Well, the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Peter is kind of living in this Old Testament Daniel prophetic sort of mode. Jesus is the Son of Man by his own account. He's the Messiah. All dominion has been placed under his feet. It is completely nonsensical that Jesus is talking about dying. The problem, of course, is that, is that Peter has overlooked Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. 
He's overlooked entire passages in the book of Zechariah that says the Messiah must go up to Jerusalem to be killed. So Peter is only working with like half of the data. And again, this is not unusual. In Jesus' day, there was a great debate over who the Messiah was going to be, what was his nature going to be, what was going to happen, was he a conqueror? Opinions were all over the place. And so Peter really is just a man of his time. But Peter, Peter does something dumb. Peter takes Jesus when he hears him talking about death. And I want you to picture this. It says that he takes him aside and he rebukes him. He, he pulls him away from the crowd. He's like, Jesus, you've got to stop talking like that. Like, this is not going to happen to you. And then Jesus does something really, really over the top. It says that he turns, puts Peter behind him. He turns and he says, get behind me, Satan. So he's having a private conversation with Peter. He turns his back. He faces everyone. I think he's talking loudly. Get behind me, Satan. Now, if you ever pull Jesus aside and he turns around and calls you Satan in front of everyone, there's a very good chance that you messed up. You messed up. So what in the world did Peter do? Well, I think we have to go back to Matthew chapter 4 to understand exactly what is going on here and why this is a problem. Matthew chapter 4, I'll paraphrase, it's the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. There are three temptations when he goes out to fast in the wilderness for 40 days. The first is that he's hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, turn these rocks into bread and eat and sustain yourself. And Jesus' response essentially is, uh, we, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. And basically, I'm going to wait and depend upon my father to sustain me in my trial. The second temptation, he goes up to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, Jesus, if you throw yourself off of this temple, Scripture says that you'll not even be hurt at all. God will send down angels and catch you up into the air, and everyone will see that you're the Messiah, and they'll all fall down and worship you. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And Jesus refuses to do it. The third temptation, he takes Jesus up to a mountaintop, and the devil says, kneel down before me, and I will give you dominion over everything that you see. And Jesus refuses to do it. Contrast that with Daniel 7, where the Son of Man has already had everything promised to him. The problem with those three temptations, the devil's goal is to make Jesus do an end around to circumvent the cross. Because our enemy knows that the cross is where he loses. The cross is where his battle was over. And he desperately wants to convince Jesus to go the other way. And if it is possible for Jesus, the God-man, and I don't pretend to know how divinity and humanity work together, but if it is possible for him to be tempted, I think this is the temptation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Lord, if it, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The cross, on some level, I think he, Jesus is afraid of it because he knows how bad it's going to be. And yet... He's faced with this temptation by Satan to go away from it, to, to avoid the torture of the cross, the pain of the cross. And he survives that temptation. And now here comes Peter, his right-hand guy who five minutes earlier proclaimed him as the Messiah, is now acting as a mouthpiece for Satan himself. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan, because he knows that his mission as the Messiah goes 
to the cross. That's where he wins. And that's where you and I win. But he doesn't just stop with calling Peter Satan, does he? He goes a step further. He says, uh, you do not have, uh, let me find the scripture here so I get it, so I get it right. Uh, he says, you do not have in your mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? We need to understand the background of what's happening here. We found out last week at the beginning of chapter 16 that these events are happening in and around the, the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a very ancient uh, city uh, that once had a shrine to the Greek god Pan. And uh, the city's name uh, at that time was called Panion. Well, Herod the Great, the Herod that was alive when, when Jesus was born, you know, Herod and the wise men, that Herod. Herod the Great gave that region, or was given that region by Caesar Augustus. When Herod the Great died, all of the territories that he ruled were divided up into five parts called Tetrarchs. His son, Philip, called Philip the Tetrarch, was given governance over the region where Caesarea Philippi was. When he became governor, he rebuilt the city. He took the little shrine to the god Pan. He made a huge temple and dedicated it to Caesar and renamed the town Caesarea Philippi. So here, in the honor of Caesar and himself, of course, because if you're a tyrant, you can do that. So he renames the city Caesarea Philippi. And here come Jesus and Peter in this place of false pagan worship, of very wealthy and powerful men glorifying themselves through worship. And Peter is looking at Caesarea Philippi, seeing Jesus the Messiah and him the right-hand man, and he's thinking, you know what? We're going to rename this city Jesus and Peter Pie. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. Jesus and Peter Pie. He, he's, he's viewing this the way earthly rulers and tyrants view it. And so he's completely missing uh, the point of what is actually going on. And this tells us something about Peter's mixed motives. And it tells us something about our mixed motives. I have no doubt that Peter absolutely loves Jesus. No doubt at all. Um, nobody makes a fool of himself as many times as Peter does without actually being in love with the guy that he's trying to follow. He has real affection for him. No doubt. And yet, his motives are kind of mixed, aren't they? He's following Jesus because he kind of sees himself as Jesus' potential right-hand man. You follow Jesus, you follow Messiah, good things are going to come your way. And all of a sudden, Jesus is put in the brakes and saying, no, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter's not happy. Here's the thing. That's what Jesus is really asking all of us to do. Uh, he goes into the next, the next part of this passage, and he says, uh, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's completely disabusing the disciples of their preconceptions. Uh, deny yourself. He's telling them to disassociate themselves from their own interests. If you're going to follow me, disciple, you have to give up on your self-reliance. You have to give up on your own self-preservation and your self-righteousness. If you're going to follow me, you can't be worried about preserving your life because that's not how it works. And so what does that look like for us when we say, deny yourself and follow Jesus? It looks a little different for everyone. 
But it does mean that sometimes when you follow Jesus, bad things are going to happen to you because you're following Jesus. I happen to know two guys who worked in the secular workforce. And uh, both of them were confronted with real ethical dilemmas. Both of them uh, had a boss who wanted them to lie about other employees. These other employees were those he wanted out of the company, but he had no good reason to actually fire them. So he talked to these men. These are two different companies, two different situations, but almost identical. Wanted these two men to fabricate lies to get these other employees fired. And both of these Christian men refused to do it. One of them was himself framed for something he did not do and fired. And the other one was made so miserable he quit six months later. Sometimes denying yourself Putting aside your own need for self-preservation to simply follow Jesus means you're going to pay some kind of price. And it won't be pretty. It also may mean that all of those plans you have in your life may not come to much. Some of you have done and will do great things. And a lot of people are going to know about it. And some of you either have or will do great things and nobody's going to know about it. You will, you will do your job faithfully and diligently in relative obscurity for your entire life. I have a good pastor friend who's 60. I don't mean to be a bummer. That is just reality, okay? That is reality. I have a pastor friend who's nearing 60. He's thinking about retirement. He and I had lunch a couple months ago. And he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm up, coming up on 60. And I realized the other day that, like, this is it. That I thought... My ministry was on a trajectory. And for the record, every pastor thinks his ministry is on a trajectory. He will move on from a bigger to a bigger to a bigger church. Like we all think that, even if we deny it. Then something happens and we realize, yeah, that's really not the way this works, ever. Um, except for once in a while, and I don't really trust a lot of those guys. Um, so, so he's like, this is it. Like I thought I was just going to be on this trajectory. And he said 15 years ago, it just flattened out. And he said, I never became the great preacher that I wanted to be. I never wrote a book. I, I'm, I'm on the radio in Pittsburgh, but that's because we pay $250 a week to do it. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm, I'm really nobody. Like, this is it. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't call us to be somebodies. He just calls us to put aside our own self-preservation and follow him faithfully. And the truth is, for most of us, that's going to look really bland. With the occasional highlight of some coolness. But mostly you just follow and you follow faithfully. And so he says, deny yourself. Deny your need for self-preservation. Deny your need for accolades. Deny your need for other people to think you're awesome. And follow me. Because I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And he tells them, take up your cross. Now we turn this into a metaphor a lot and we, you know, all kinds of things become taking up your cross when you're us because we happen to live in a privileged age where we've never actually had to take up a cross. But three of these disciples, church tradition tells us, did actually have to take up a cross. Peter and Philip and Andrew, tradition says, were all crucified. They all died. Uh, I I finished while I was on vacation, um, Endo's book, uh, Silence. I have to credit Colin Messer. I was in his office one day and he tossed this book at me and said, you have to read this. So I read it and it's been haunting me. And there are two things in, this, in the book particularly that haunted me. One of the main characters is, is a guy, a Japanese man, who's always apostatizing and coming back for repentance over and over again. 
And at some point in the book, he says, I am cursed because I, I don't live in a better age. If I lived in a different time, I would probably have been a pretty good Christian. And he's us, I think, right? Like, we have the blessing of living in a time where it's really pretty good for us. And so we all, like, we're pretty good Christians. And yet, we've never really had to take up a cross, have we? Not really, most of the time. There, there's another point in that book too that also sticks out to me if you haven't read this book you must read this book it is a very uncomfortable book but the missionary uh, Sebastian uh, he's, a, he's a priest and he's gone to Japan as a missionary and the Japanese authorities are trying to force everyone to apostatize and the way they do that is they have a, a piece of wood that has a medallion with a picture of Jesus on it it's called a fumi and they put it on the ground and if you apostatize you have to step on and spit on the fumi and so the priest is at this moment where um, he's seen friends be tortured and killed. He's in this real state of turmoil and he's hearing all the different voices, his interrogators talking to him and his own thoughts in his head and memories in his head. And then he looks at the Fumi and he says that he hears the voice of Jesus who says, step on me. It's for this reason that I came to be trampled on by men. Jesus knows that the way of the Messiah is death. It's death. And it's not just his death. He's asking his disciples to be willing to die too. Minimally to die to self. Maximally to actually be killed. But he also gives really profound promises. Remember, Peter got hung up on the dying part and missed the part about the resurrection. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't think he's speaking metaphorically there. I think he's speaking very contextually to his disciples. I don't believe this is a statement for us to all go out and seek martyrdom. I don't think that's what's being said here. He's saying to his disciples, though, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A man doesn't say that unless he is completely confident in the resurrection. You don't talk like that unless you are absolutely sure that Father in heaven has your back. And he's telling his disciples that he has your back too. And you follow me because I know where we're going. I know the way. Be confident and don't be afraid. Follow me. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Picture that scene on the mountain where Satan asked Jesus to bow down and worship him. What does it profit Jesus to accept a shortcut to something the Father has already promised him? And what does it value, what does it do for us to accept shortcuts to things that our Father has already promised us? Life everlasting, resurrection. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. To what he has done. It's a reference to, did he take up his cross and follow me, or did he reject me? It's, it's a reference to acceptance or, or rejection of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to become the conquering king, because when I go through this dark place that the Father is sending me, I'm going to come again on the backside of this and set it all right. And so you can have confidence. And so Christness, Christness 
is, is about death and suffering. But it's not only about that. It's also about resurrection and about life and life everlasting. And so I close with this little illustration. The African impala. Great little fascinating creature. Uh, the African impala can jump 30 feet horizontally from a standstill. It can jump 10 feet in the air from a standstill. And yet the impala can be kept in a cage by a three-foot wall. Because the impala, and I've seen this at the Fort Worth Zoo, the impala will not jump over anything if he cannot see where he's going to land. And so this beautiful creature with all the strength and power in the world is captured by his own fear and his own doubt. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you follow me and you have everything that the Father's promised me. It's going to be yours too. And I know where we're going to land. So you don't need to be captive by your fears. It's going to be a little bit rough. There are going to be times when you have no idea what's happening to you. But when you come through it, you're going to land with Jesus. You're going to land with Jesus. And all that was promised to him is going to be yours. And so faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And to remember that life always comes after death for the Christian. Death doesn't get the final word. Suffering doesn't get to win. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.